turn in your scripture to Genesis chapter 21. We'll be looking at the first 21 verses of that chapter. It's on page 18 of the Pew Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with Nordstrom's, the department store. Everybody and their amazing uh, money-back promise. I want to tell you a story about a man who walked into one of their stores and and bought a brand new Navy blazer. After wearing it pretty regularly for, for about six months, he began to get tired of it because he found that, that this navy blue blazer was like a lint magnet. And every time he went out, he just looked terrible. So he hung it in his closet and he forgot about it. About a year later, when he was cleaning out that closet, the man found this blazer. And while wondering what he should do with it, suddenly remembered Nordstrom's famous unconditional return policy. He decided he had nothing to lose and took the blazer to the local store. He walked right up to the first salesman that he saw and gave his prepared speech. He said, I'm about to put your famous unconditional return policy to the test. I bought this blazer about a year and a half ago. I stopped wearing it because it attracts lint like that's what it was made to do. So I want to return this blazer for another one. The salesman, with his big handlebar mustache, stood looking at the man for a moment and then said, for heaven's sake, what took you so long? Let's go and get you a new blazer. And he walked out ten minutes later with a blazer that was more expensive than the first one he had bought. In a way... God is like Nordstrom's when it comes to his promises. God makes all sorts of outlandish promises. And we, a lot of times, are like that man. We can't bring ourselves to believe sometimes, to really trust that that outlandish promise is really true. We're a little like Sarah today, who just couldn't bring herself to believe that God could overcome her 80-year-old body, her 80-year-old barrenness, and fulfill this outrageous promise of a son. But that's what we see here in our text. There's no promise so big, so outlandish, that God doesn't happily fulfill it. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 21. The word of God says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time in which God had spoken to him. Abraham called his name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, 
as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast this slave woman with her son, for the, slave, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac shall be your offspring, your offspring be named. And I will make a nation out of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Father God, I, I lean wholly on you to preach your word. Help me, Lord. Communicate what you have in these words to your people. Spirit, use them to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Who hasn't seen Mary Poppins? Nobody. Well, almost nobody. There's that great song in Mary Poppins called I Love to Laugh. You know that song? That's like my favorite song in that movie. Where Bert... And Mary Poppins, they and the kids visit Uncle Albert, and they find Uncle Albert up near the ceiling laughing, and then they, as we all kind of do at times like that, we just burst into song, don't we? I mean, that's what our family does every once in a while, just burst into song. So realistic. So they burst out into song, and they sing a song about the different types of laughter, right? There's the laughter of hissing through the teeth. The laughter of, of uh, through the nose, uh, the laughter of, of twittering, the twittering laughter, and then the, the uh, what was the fourth type of laughter? The laughter of, ha, ha that's it, 
Yeah, explosive laughter. I was waiting for somebody. I knew Ted can't resist. You know, he's just, he's right there. He couldn't. (laughs) Well, our text today contains two different types of laughter. And I'd like to draw our attention to it. The first laughter is a laughter of joy, a joy laughter. The first seven verses of our text is about God's long-awaited promise coming true, isn't it? This is, this is the time when the, the last chapters from chapter 12 all the way to 21 come to its fruition. The promise given by God back, in Abra- back to Abraham 25 years previous is coming to fruition right here. Back in chapter 12, we have God making the promise of making Abram into a great nation. Remember that? One of that wonderful promise there. And the promise, this promise is reiterated many different times and ways over these last chapters. In chapter 12, 7, he, remember he walks around the land and, and God reiterates his promise right there. Just a few verses later for us, but he has traveled into the promised land. And he gives the, the promise of this is the land that I'm going to give your offspring. And he reiterates that in chapter 15 with the stars. In chapter 17, twice in chapter 17. And in verse 18, when the angels visit. Getting more specific each time. You're going to be a nation. It'll come from a son. You'll give him the name Isaac. And even in chapter 18 down to the timing. When I come back a year from now, you will have him. There's been a lot of laughter associated with Isaac's birth. Abraham laughed to himself. You remember when, when God told him he was going to have a son named Isaac? He kind of bowed down, if you remember that, in chapter 17 and laughed to himself. This, this kind of overjoyful joy, joyful laughter, kind of an incredulous laughter. Then there was the laughter of disbelief in the next chapter with Sarah, right? Her standing at the tent opening when... when uh, the angel tells her that she'll be pregnant a year from now, and she laughs in disbelief. But then there are two more laughters here associated with the promised child. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Here, Sarah is talking about this. And, I, and, and as I read this, I, 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 I kind of read it as she's, she's bubbling over with joy. You know, this isn't a dry, something dryly read. This is, she, she's bubbling over and saying, God has made laughter for me. I can hear her laughing because she's holding this eight-day-old baby that she has been told that she's going to have. She continues and says, everyone who hears will laugh over me. There will be joy of kind of awe and amazement that this 80-year-old woman who was well beyond childbearing age has this Wonderful son. And so we have this eight, this Sarah holding this eight-day-old baby, laughing with joy. What I am going to call incredulous, joyful laughter. Incredulous, joyful laughter. Sarah is incredulous at Isaac's birth. She is kind of shocked and amazed. She's, she's incredulous that at their age they have a son, that she is nursing. She is nursing a baby at her age. 
that people will laugh when they see her in amazement. She's so well past childbearing age. So she, she is incredulous, but at the same time, she's overjoyed. So she's amazed and shocked, and there's joy mixed in there. This is the fulfillment of a lifetime desire for her. I don't think in our culture we can quite understand. We can kind of comprehend it, but we can't deeply understand a woman not being able to have a baby back then. It was everything. It meant everything. And this is the end of that shame, of that pressure, of all eyes on her all the time. This is the fulfillment of a 25-year-old promise of God. God has come through. She's joyful at that. God came through for her, even though she doubted. So she's laughing this incredulously joyful laughter. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced that type of laughter? A time when, when God came through in a, just an amazing way. And you kind of can't help but have this feeling or even a bubble over into a laughter of, of incredulous joy. This is amazing. I had that experience coming up on 21 years ago. When the doors opened at the back of a little church down in Connecticut, and Carrie walked through those doors. Hope I can get through this. I was 31 at the time and had been waiting and praying for a wife for 10 years out of college. And it had finally come true. The doors opened. That it was coming true. God's promise was coming true in my life. It was finally happening. Ten years. It's a long time in our culture. I remember, I remember standing up there with my best man, and there was a chuckle cry. This incredulous joy. Here she is. I can't believe it's actually happening. Here she is. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Joyful incredulity. And I think that's what we see bubbling over here in verses 6 and 7, this joyful incredulity. It's really quite a human reaction to God fulfilling outrageous promises. keeping those promises that we think are beyond his grasp. I was thinking as I was preparing this about the benediction that I said last week. There's an incredulously outrageous promise in that. You know, why we say benedictions in church is so that the body of Christ is left encouraged, is left bolstered, is left knowing that God is with them. And in the benediction I read to you last week is, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That should bring you joyful incredulity. 
that you will be sanctified. That God will not give up on you. That you are not alone in this. That's his promise to you in Philippians 1.6. That he will bear fruit in your life. That you will be a blessing to others. That God will never, ever give up on you. This is the promise that we read together last week in the reading, public reading of Scripture that we did together in 2 Timothy. Let me remind you of this. This is the Word of God. He says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Does that bring incredulous joy to you? Gosh, that just seems so outlandish and outrageous. But God will keep his promise. That should make us chuckle like Sarah did. Or think of the promise found in John chapter 6, verse 39, that Jesus will lose none the Father has given him and will raise them up in the last day. He will lose none. If you are here and you have put your trust in Christ, you don't have to worry. God's got you. Two promises in there. That he will raise you up. How about this promise? That the body that you have right now, in some way, shape, or form, will be glorified. We don't know all what that means, but this body will go on with you. Its essence, what it is. And it will be physical. And it will be sinless. And it will be painless. Incredulous laughter. Or think about Matthew 16, 18. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Have you thought about that one? How amazing that is? How amazing the promise that God has placed over his church? Here's something even more amazing. Do you realize that when we read that text, when we say that text, that is not a defensive posture that we're put in. The gate, like the gates of hell are, are pushing on us. What is seen there is the kingdom of God pushing and pressing against the gates of hell and the gates of hell eventually collapsing. We're in an offensive posture there. And he promises to make it come true. Incredulous joy, anybody? We could go on and on and on about Second Chronicles 7.14, that prayer actually changes nations. Or First John 1.9, that no matter how egregious your sin or how terrible you think it is, it can be forgiven. Or Mark 11.24, that prayer, every prayer that you pray will be answered. Or Revelation 21 that heaven, heaven is actually coming to earth when he returns. Oh my goodness, really? 
yes. Or maybe the biggest and most outrageous promise of all is God's promise to forgive your sin and bring you back into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. It's one of the, that's the biggest promise in Scripture. The God who made everything, who is sovereign over everything, created not only the creation, but you and me to worship him, to love him, to be in intimate relationship with him forever. But that we chose ourselves over God. I want to be God. I want to do things my way. I want to be the master of my domain. And we sinned and we turned away and we went our own way and we broke this relationship, this perfect, intimate relationship. And we now live a life separated from him. We can't hear his voice anymore. And when and if we can even hear it, we don't want to hear what he has to say. Don't tell me what to do is how we translate his loving commands. We view his loving care and his protection of us as authoritarianism, don't we? That's the sin, that's the broken relationship. But he sent Christ. He sent Christ. God loved us so much in spite of how we treat him. He sent his only son to live the life that we could not, perfect in every way, pleasing God in everything he does, innocent on all counts, to take the punishment that we deserve. He said, don't relegate Blake to eternal damnation. I'll take it. That's what we call Easter. You want to know what Easter is all about? That is it. The great substitution, he for me. And the great joy that we feel at Easter is that he rose again from the dead. He didn't stay dead. Through his resurrection, he conquered the power of sin and the curse of sin, which is death. And he said in John chapter 11, If you believe that, you will never die but live. There's the promise, guys. There's the the kind of outrageous promise that is the gospel. You will not die but live. What's your response to that? Maybe you're sitting here and this is an encouraging story, an encouraging thing to hear because you have the Spirit in you and you go, it's a great exhale for you. I praise God for that. And I praise God. And I, my hope is that everyone here is exhaling. But there might be somebody here who is not exhaling, who's going, I'm not sure. What's your response to Christ's great love? Because it requires a response. 
requires us of repenting of our sin and trusting Christ. Trusting what Christ has done for me. A moment when you understand the promise of God that I just explained. And that promise is actually foreshadowed right here in Isaac's birth, isn't it? That's what Isaac's birth predominantly shows us. That there is a greater promise, a greater Isaac that will be born. That both Isaac's and Jesus' birth is foretold, isn't it? Isaac's birth here, we've been hearing about it for five or six chapters. Jesus' birth since right after the fall, Genesis 3.15. This great snake crusher is going to come. Both Isaac's birth and Jesus' birth are, are long-waited, aren't they? Sarah's been waiting 25 years. That's one of the reasons that she bubbles over with joy. The people of God were going to wait thousands of years for Jesus. The parallel of their miraculous birth. Here Sarah is barren and beyond childbearing age. Mary is a virgin. How are these women going to be? And there's the name given. Abraham was told to name his son Isaac years before he was born. Gabriel visited Mary and said, you shall give him the name Jesus. Then think about this parallel. Both births are met with both joy and resentment. Both births are met with both joy and resentment. Here at Sarah, that incredulous laugh with Jesus the heavens opened up and the angels praised God, didn't they? The both births were also met with deep resentment. Who can forget Herod with Jesus? And who can forget Ishmael with Isaac? That leads us to our next laughter, which is mocking laughter. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. It says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day. Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Here we are three years later, in between verses 7 and 8, or three years later. Children were usually weaned around the age of three. So Isaac is three, and Ishmael is about 16 or 17 at this time. And we're not told the circumstance, but at that party, holding that baby, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. And her reaction to it gives us a little indication of what type of laughter that was, doesn't it? She immediately goes to Abraham and says, get rid of these people. It was a derisive type of laughter. It was a... Mocking laughter. If you do a little work in Hebrew, you can see that this laughter was indeed derisive. It's the same word that is used back in chapter 19, verse 14, when Lot goes to his sons-in-laws and says, Sod, God is going to destroy Sodom. And what do the sons-in-laws do? They laugh at him, mocking. It's the same word that's used in, in Judges when, when the Philistines bring Samson out into the arena at the end of his life. They, they laugh and they mock him. So Ishmael's laugh is intended to hurt. 
maybe a laugh of superiority or perhaps disrespect or disdain. Whatever it was, Sarah sees it and knows it. So she tells Abraham to get rid of both Ishmael and Hagar. Now, you could interpret that a couple different ways. You could interpret it as an act of jealousy and vengeance, couldn't you? I'm getting rid of this problem. This isn't the first time that she has mocked me. She felt disrespected and was going to use her relationship, her her marriage with Abraham, to leverage them out. You could interpret it that way. You could also interpret it as she is protecting Isaac's inheritance. If you look at verse 10, she proclaims, The son of the slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. She's protecting the land, the money. But it could be a spiritual reaction. It could be a spiritual reaction to Ishmael's unbelief. Let me explain. One of the earliest uh, pictures we have of persecution, Christian persecution, is this graffiti that is somewhere between the first and third centuries. And the image is carved on plastic on a wall in Rome and is dated somewhere in the first and third centuries. It depicts a man looking at a person with the head of a donkey that is being crucified. And scrawled next to this image are the translated words, Aleximenos, worshiping God. Here we have pictorial evidence that a believer named Aleximenos is being teased for his faith, is being ridiculed for believing in Jesus, mocked for believing in the promise that Jesus offers. Mockery for your faith, for my faith in Christ, is as old as Christ himself. We feel it today. Do you feel it today? I had, several years ago, during the time of Tim Tebow and the whole thing where he was praying, you know, in, in the pose, people would, were doing the, the Tebow prayer pose. Do you remember that? Shake your head so I'm not talking to the... Okay, good. So that prayer pose was very in vogue at that time. I had a person in the town whom I had shared my faith with a couple times. And for years during that time, every time he would see me, he would stop and do that pose and kind of laugh. And I'd kind of chuckle too. And he'd go on his way and I'd go on my way. I didn't take any offense at that. It wasn't that hurtful. I knew it was kind of in fun. But at the core of that, there was mockery. He was mocking my, maybe my prayer values or what I believed or maybe a little of Alexa Menos worshiping his God. Now, listen, I didn't take it like that and I didn't react but at the core of what he was doing was mockery. And that's what we see here with Ishmael. 
Professor at Westminster Seminary Ian Duguid writes this, Ishmael sneered at the birth of this little baby instead of bowing before him lost in wonder, love, and praise. Sarah would not tolerate such an affront to God and to the child of promise. So she demanded that they be sent away. Here it is. Since they had no interest in the true inheritance, they had no place in the household. If we read Sarah, what Sarah did through the lens of jealousy and pride, we lose the gravity of what Ishmael was doing. takes the mockery of God's and God's promises very seriously. That's what she does. She takes God very seriously. Think about mockery. Think about the third commandment we have. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. A lot of us go instantly to swearing or using Jesus Christ in, a, in, a, in that manner. But it's not only about swearing. It's about addresses using God's name in a trivial manner. It's using who he is in a trivial manner. It's trivializing God is what he's getting at. It's mocking God. Psalm 1 tells us in no uncertain terms that to sit in the seat of mockers it describes those people as like chaff. It goes on to say, will not stand up in, the, in God's judgment and they will perish. Mockers will perish. And we have an example of that in the book of Acts with Herod in chapter 12, where he spent all these chapters persecuting and mocking the apostles and God's church. And what happens to Herod in chapter 12? He is struck dead and one of the more enigmatic things happens. He's eaten by worms. God takes mockery of him and his promises very seriously. You see, we can read this as petty jealousy on Sarah's part or great insight and faith. She was identifying that Ishmael had no desire to look at Isaac in wonder, love, and praise, only jealousy. She was identifying that Ishmael had no interest in the true inheritance, which is that of faith, but in the physical inheritance. He wanted the physical inheritance, not the spiritual. What Sarah saw was that Ishmael wanted the things the father had but not the Father. And although it looks so harsh, she forces Ishmael out. Now, I want to be gentle, but truthful here. We all have part of our heart. We all have part of our heart that's like Ishmael's. Part of our heart wants the benefits of God. Give me all the benefits Make me feel good. Give me a good life. Give me, give me an easy marriage. 
Give me an easy comfort, comfort life. Give me these benefits. But you don't really care about God. We all have that going on in our hearts. Part of our heart is here in church today because it's the right thing to do. It's what I've always done. It's actually maybe, even if we're honest, a notch that gets us closer to heaven. Part of our heart in joining and hanging around with the church is because it's something I've always done. It looks good. It serves me. Part of our heart does the good and godly things during the week because in some way, shape, or form, it puts the benefits that we read in Scripture a little closer to our grasp. Even part of my heart, my heart, in preparing and preaching to you is so that I will look good in your eyes. And in some way, shape, or form, I'm putting God in my debt. Gets me a little closer to that pot of gold. We all have part of Ishmael's heart going on inside us. We want the inheritance. We want the reward. We want the Father's things. And if we get the Father, that's secondary. We get the relationship, okay. We all mock God. What the expulsion of Ishmael teaches us is that we need to be supernaturally changed towards the Father. We need this text to preach to our hearts, to reveal those areas that we do mock God in those ways that we desire the things the Father has and not the Father. We need our hearts to be changed so that it's just the exact opposite. I want the Father in the relationship. And you know the benefits that we read about? Okay, that's fine. I want the Father. God wants us to move from a have-to to a want-to in our hearts. From what I can get to what I can give in our hearts. From a quid pro quo, meaning I get something, I earn something by doing these good works, to what I've been given, thus I want to, please. Falling in love with the Father gives us that sense of abandon and freedom in serving God. That could have been Ishmael. He could have been free to love his brother, expecting nothing in return, because he loved his father Abraham. Just as we can be free to love and do and serve, expecting nothing in return. Why? Because we've got the Father. And the promise that brings us incredulous, joyful laughter is this. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. But those who save their own lives will lose it. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for your word. Change us, Spirit. Not by my words, but by your power. Thank you for your word today. Use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.